Welcome to the Institute of Buddhist Studies podcast. The following is audio from the Red Book Dialogue between Jack Cornfield and Diane Sherwood, hosted by the C.G. Young Institute of San Francisco and the Institute of Buddhist Studies at the Hotel Kabuki in San Francisco, November 12, 2010. Video of this event is available on our website at podcast.shin-edu. Welcome. It's really wonderful to look out into this room and see so many people who have showed up for this wonderful event. My name is Ellen Becker. I am a Jungian analyst and the chair of the development committee of the C.G. Jung Institute. It's been a delight to join with the Institute of Buddhist Studies to put on this dialogue and the last one. Richard Payne, the dean of IBS, will be welcoming you in a few minutes. Tonight's dialogue will feature a conversation between Jack Cornfield and Diane Sherwood. This series includes two more dialogues in 2011. The first, February 4th, features Susan Griffin in conversation with Tom Singer. And the last dialogue features Maxine Hong Kingston in conversation with Naomi Lewinsky and Rhoda Feinberg. Like so many of us do at some point in our lives, Jung realized that he had lost his way and must re-engage with his deepest self, which he called soul. He realized that he had to distinguish between what is soulless and what is sacred. Jung wrote, quote, give me your hand, my almost forgotten soul. How warm the joy at seeing you again, you long disavowed soul. Life has led me back to you. Let us thank the life that I have lived for all the happy and all the sad hours, for every joy, for every sadness. My soul, my journey should continue with you. The heart of the Red Book is this inward, depthful journey. The heart of and soul of the C.G. Jung Institute of San Francisco is our commitment to make room for this inward journey and to work collectively and individually to create a place for learning, a place to further one's inner journey and to provide a place to connect Jung's ideas to our present time. For professionals, we have both an analytic training program and a child analytic training program. And for professionals and non-professionals alike, we offer a low-fee clinic, an intern training program, a wonderful library of books, a nationally renowned library of symbolic images, continuing education classes, and friends of the Institute who offer Sunday afternoon gatherings and reading groups. We are psychotherapy colleagues from many different disciplines, from psychiatry and psychology and nursing and ministry, who keep coming together to create a place where the soul and the unconscious are welcome. These Red Book Dialogues are a new venture for us. There are many ways to go inward, and tonight we bring together Diane Sherwood and Jack Cornfield 
to discuss their thoughts on and experiences of the inner journey. Our desire tonight is to create a container, a vessel, to explore and illuminate different paths that help with the discovery of oneself. Hopefully something we say tonight connects with your own inner journey, your own wrestlings, and your own process. Thank you all for being here tonight. It is now my pleasure to introduce Dr. Richard Payne. Since 1994, Richard has been the Dean of the Institute of Buddhist Studies, a private freestanding graduate program affiliated with the Graduate Theological Union. He has been studying Buddhism for 40 years. Dr. Payne is an ordained Buddhist priest. Richard? Thank you very much, Ellen, and thank you for being here this evening. The Institute of Buddhist Studies is also an educational center devoted to deepening the tradition of Buddhism as uh, making the deep tradition of Buddhism accessible in the West today. The tradition is long, diverse, and stretches across multiple cultural environments, multiple languages, uh, recorded in many, many different kinds of texts. As a graduate program, we offer uh, MA-level degree programs uh, and also participate in the doctoral program at the Graduate Theological Union. Um, we're not only affiliated with the Graduate Theological Union, but also with Ryukoku University in Kyoto. Uh, and have a student exchange program with them as well. In addition to the academic programs that we offer, we also have programs that are practically oriented. We have a program of ministerial education for the Buddhist Churches of America, Japanese Pure Land tradition. We also have a chaplaincy training program for those wanting to bring their Buddhist practice into environments like hospitals, jails, military, um, and hospices. In addition, we have just initiated a certificate in Buddhism and contemporary psychology, which is oriented towards those already in the helping professions who want to learn more in an academic way, in a didactic fashion, about the Buddhist tradition. We do have a brochure out on the table that describes the chaplaincy program. There are also some copies of our journal, The Pacific World, which is available uh, as well. This evening, it is my pleasure to introduce Jack Cornfield, who trained as a Buddhist monk in the monasteries of Thailand, India, and Burma. Uh, he has taught meditation internationally since 1974 and is one of the key teachers to introduce Buddhist mindfulness practice to the West. He joined the Peace Corps in 1967 and was assigned to work in Thailand where he met and then studied with some of the uh, contemporary leaders of the mindfulness tradition there, including the Venerable Ajahn Chah and the Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw. He returned to the United States, established the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, which is also still active and going strong and is also a founding teacher of the Spirit Rock Center in Woodacre, California, where he currently lives and teaches. 
Um, I'm struck by the fact that not only does he talk the talk about the interaction of Buddhism and psychology, and also the application of those both to the real world, but he also walks the walk. He holds a PhD in clinical psychology and is a husband, father, and an activist. It is a privilege for me to introduce Diane Sherwood to you tonight. I first met Diane when she was newly certified as an analyst, and I was an analytic candidate. At that first meeting, I experienced Diane as being thoughtful, warm, open-hearted, and engaging. I have been fortunate to have had lots of contact with her since then, and she has been wonderfully consistent with those first impressions. Diane Sherwood is a Jungian analyst and editor of the Jung journal, Culture and Psyche. She is a student in the Buddhist Nigma tradition. Diane has written on shamanism, alchemy, the Lakota vision quest, and the neurophysiology of implicit communication. Diane has also authored with Joseph Henderson, Transformation of the Psyche, The Symbolic Alchemy of the Splendor Solace. Let us welcome Diane and Jack to the stage. Well, Jack, it looks like you have the big square table and I have the little round table. Do you think that's, we should interpret that or do you think we should just go with it? <laughs> oh, I think the interpretation would be interesting. Please. <laughs> Tell me your thoughts. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> anyway, Diane, I'm very glad we get to do this, and I'm very glad to see all of you here. And there's something magic and talismanic about the Red Book itself and how the bringing forth of this amazing volume of Jung's work has galvanized both the Jungian community and invited in lots of other people to, to understand kind of the root or the depth of this journey, so. Hi. Hi. Well, um, it's wonderful to be here and to see so many friends and so many new faces, too. And especially an honor to be with you, Jack. Thank you. And um, I think I wanted to say that being a Jungian analyst, most of my work is uh, very private, one-on-one. -on -one. It suits me as an introverted person, um, really following a single psyche. And I was trying to get over some of my anxiety about doing this uh, this afternoon and realizing it's not my natural way to speak to a big group, especially in a spontaneous way. Usually when I do it, it turns out fine. But I, but I thought, okay, this is an opportunity. And then I realized, if I don't think of you as a group of so many people, but I realize that each of you has come here for a reason. And you, you have many choices about what to do with this evening, but you've chosen to come here. And maybe each of you could just think for a moment, reflect for a moment on what it is that brought you here. And maybe it's something that you don't even know yet, but that you'll discover. Lovely, lovely. Well, um, 
I'd add to that my welcome and also um, some mixture, as I want to say, both of um, uh, humor, um, condolence, and um, vulnerability. See how to say this. Um, I imagine, and I'll ask you in a minute a little bit to find out about the group, um, that the Red Book, which is really Jung's description of his own journey and of his life falling apart in certain ways, certainly inwardly for a time, um, draws you here in some way because it's part of our human journey and that we have periods where we go through a great deal of success in our life, um, but then other periods where we really have to do what Jung did and stop and uh, take stock of our life in some way. Um, and they're not always easy. Um, one Indian saint puts it this way. He said, go ahead, light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells, and call out to the gods. But watch out, because the gods will come. <laughs> and they will put you on their anvil and fire up the forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. <laughs> and so some of the spirit of this work, and you really say it, Diane, you know, is it's not just the collective work, but it's also what draws us as individuals. Um, and, and what Ellen spoke of, of the kind of one-to-one -one journey that is invited in Jungian analysis, um, that we all in some way are invited into that, even in the presence of the Red Book. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, let me ask you a question before we go further. A few questions, just to know, um, get a little sense. How many of you are... Um, Therapists or healers, some kind. About half the room. That's average for San Francisco, I'd say. Right? <laughs> the rest are your clients that you dragged along. I know that. Only was good for you. All right. How many of you have done um, Buddhist practice in some systematic way? Again, half or more. That's great. Um, how many of you are particularly involved in Jungian work? Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, how many are uh, scientists? Great. Educators? I should ask politicians, please. You know, <laughs> use a few. Um, how many of you are artists? Fabulous. And, and one more, we could go on. Um, how many of you in some way in your life are committed through some form or other to um, the inner journey? Okay, and those who didn't raise their hand just have to open your eyes and you'll, you'll see. Um, so now we see a little bit of that, that beauty that you're talking about, that array of people. Yes, it's like uh, seeing a lot of different colors all flowing together as each of you, I mean, there were so many hands raised, yes, to those questions, the, the multiplicity of the ways that you are following your paths. Well, Jack, the first uh, two words of the Red Book are the way. And so I'm, I'm wondering, uh, certainly is a phrase we hear uh, in Buddhist teachings as well, and I'm, I'm wondering how you would view um, the, your experience of the Jungian way and 
what the Buddhist way might be, mm-hmm. or a Buddhist way. First of all, I just want to take that word because it's so important and beautiful. And maybe as we go on this evening, there are different pieces that we'll talk about. And I'd like to talk about um, initiation as a part of the way. And I'd like to talk about some of the differences between the Buddhist and Jungian approaches, both the commonalities and differences. Um, and I know you have a number of different you know, perspectives that you want to put out. We have some slides, perhaps. Um, but to start with that word, Way in Sanskrit, it's marga, or Pali, it's maga. In Chinese, you would use the word Tao for the way. Um, uh, and the beautiful thing about the way, because the Buddha said, much like Jung, who didn't consider himself a Jungian and was very happy not to be that, um, I, I'm sympathetic to him, um, the Buddha also didn't consider himself a Buddhist, but rather, nor did he try to make Buddhists out of people. But rather, he said, I teach the way. And the way meant that one had to follow um, a path that led to your own individual taste of freedom. The possibility of freedom of heart and of living a life of um, liberation and compassion, of love, um, which are the fulfillment of humanity. is the birthright of every human being, but um, to come back to it, if you will, it's your original nature, your original goodness, Buddha nature it's called, but to return to it requires uh, a path, a way. Um, And mostly the way is um, like Braille, you kind of feel your way through it. And I I assume that whether it's Buddhist or or, um, in Jungian analysis, that that sense of Braille of really not knowing. And and Jung talks about it in the Red Book. He talks about going the way of not knowing. And that's some of the vulnerability. Uh, Rilke says at one point, ultimately, it's upon our vulnerability that we depend, which is an amazing line. And what it means somehow is that we are vulnerable. We're vulnerable to one another. We're vulnerable to the changes of the world, to the changes of our body. and to know it opens us to some greater mystery than our normal sense of ourselves. So, but I want to read one more thing, and then maybe you have some response to this. Mm-hmm. Um, this is from Wilhelmer Stephenson, who was one of the great polar explorers. He said, the oldest, most widespread stories in the world are adventure stories about human heroes who venture into the myth countries at the risk of their lives and bring back of tales beyond what is known. It could be argued that the narrative art itself arose from the need to tell your adventure. Risking your life in perilous encounters constitutes the original definition of what's worth talking about. So this is the first part. You can sort of hear this in Jung saying, all right, this is my journey. But he goes on. Having an adventure shows that someone is incompetent, that something has gone wrong. An adventure is interesting enough in retrospect, especially to the person who didn't have it. (laughs) At the time it happens, it actually, or it usually constitutes an exceedingly disagreeable experience. (laughs) And so in a certain way, this is also the challenge of the Red Book or of the way, using way of the path of brailing of not knowing 
um, and of the descent into ourselves, we don't know. Jung didn't know what the hell he was going to encounter. Stuff started happening. He goes, what do I do with this? I'm supposed to be Dr. Jung, you know, and all of that. But he wasn't at that time. He was a human being faced with his own vulnerability um, and, and uh, deep questions of identity and how to live and really soul questions. So. Well, maybe I could quote something that I brought, um, that I a passage from the Red Book, um, where he writes, this is on page 231, um, he, and he's, he's listening to an inner voice that's speaking to him, and it says, my path is not your path, therefore I cannot teach you. The way is within us, but not in gods, nor in teachings, nor in laws. Within us is the way, the truth, and the life. And then he goes on to say, um, if you live according to an example, you thus live the life of that example. But who should live your own life if not yourself? So live yourselves. And he also says, goes on to say, there is only one way, and that is your way. You seek the path, I warn you away from my own. It can also be the wrong way for you. May each go his own way. And then he says, therefore give people dignity and let each of them stand apart so that each may find his own fellowship and love it. Would you read that last few lines again? Give people dignity, which is so yeah. beautiful. Therefore, give people dignity and let each of them stand apart hmm. so that each may find his own fellowship and love it. Hmm. Beautiful. I mean, in a certain way, in the, the paths that one finds in the Buddhist tradition, um, that quality of dignity that Jung speaks about, um, and individuality, as the Buddha said, I found freedom for myself, now it is time for you to do the same for yourself. Um, the quality of mindful presence is really a quality of respect or dignity. To be able to be in the presence of the inner world or the uh, relational world that we have and the community around us, with a, with a beginner's mind, with eyes that can see, this is the way it actually is. This kind of respect that doesn't look for something to be different, but is open to a kind of inquiry. There's a beautiful dignity in it, because you're not trying to be something or have something. You're actually in the presence, in some way, more of the mystery of life itself. Um, so, and I think about, you know, we have these different exemplars of journeys. Um, when Nelson Mandela walked out of 27 years in Robben Island prison, a very small cell for 27 years with such magnanimity and dignity and compassion, he had taken his journey. And if you read what he writes about it, it wasn't always easy. There were times when he was not as forgiving or compassionate but somehow he had digested it in the way that Jung had to digest in the journey of the Red Book, it seems, to face 
all of his own demons and with that kind of dignity to walk out and be really of a, a, a blessing for the world. So. Jack, I'm wondering if this might be a good time just to give a little introduction about how Jung came to work on the Red Book. Sure. Um, if we could have the next slide, and some of this is on the handout that I prepared for you, the one that has, what I wanted you, th there's a lot of information on this, but what I wanted to convey is that Jung um, grew up in a family that uh, did not have uh, much money, and he was kind of an odd kid, uh, and had an odd mother, and an unhappy father, who was a parson. But he, he found something that he was passionate about uh, in the study of psychiatry. And he quickly, quickly became extremely successful. And the trajectory was just uh, sort of skyrocketed for him. So that in 1900, he finished his medical studies. And by 1906, he was internationally known and widely published. In, he, he went to uh, Vienna and met Freud and uh, kind of fell in love with Freud and then started promoting Freud and got involved in the beginnings of the psychoanalytic movement and was just full of ambition. He built, um, he designed and had built a huge home uh, on Lake Zurich and he married. He uh, was ha having a family, uh, working as a psychiatrist, just incredibly um, productive, ambitious. Um, and was the president of the International Psychoanalytical Association, world-renowned. And then um, he, he, something happened, and he couldn't follow that path anymore. And I see it as a matter of his own dignity and integrity. Um, and something deep in him started insisting that he not do this. This is my interpretation of it. And um, to give all that up is really important. And he had to give that up. And uh, he, um, I think if we, think about what, are, what is the way of each of us, we might think of what is it that we most implicitly take as something that we must do, that we must be. And it may be that very thing that is the thing that will come into question. And that, you know, I don't want to scare you, but, you know, it may be that thing that you in some way have to give up in order to get something that's much more important. Um, and that kind of, you had mentioned initiation, Jack, and I wonder if that fits in with the idea of the initiated hero. It does, and I'll, I'll get to that in oh, a minute. Okay. But I'm, I, I'd like to talk about initiation, but I want to talk about the Red Book a little bit more. If I okay, may. oh, sure. But I don't know if you have more to say there. Or, 
No, no. I okay. want I want us to. Yeah, talk to the each initiation. Other. I'd, I'd like to talk. About. We'll get to it. Okay. I, I, also want to kind of come in and 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 talk about the Red Book because, of course, um, what happened for Jung and really what the Red Book represents um, is his life at that time, as you're saying, Diane was. Um, a tremendously successful one, but at the same time, um, he began to sense that the outer success of his life wasn't sufficient, and and that the outer world and and the fulfillment of it um, somehow didn't fulfill, perhaps the language of the soul that Ellen used. Um, Simone Weil, the Christian mystic, says the danger is not that the soul should doubt whether there is any bread, but that by a lie it should persuade itself that it's not hungry. And there's a certain way in which the culture puts us to sleep. It, um, you know, we've been called the addicted society and there's all the things that externally try to keep you busy um, almost so you don't remember the deeper questions. So we just go along on the surface and, I, and Jung talked about, you know, the difference between the way of the times, which is that cultural norm, and the way of the deep. But right after his break with Freud, and even though Sonu Shandasami doesn't think it was the central thing, I'm, I'm a little skeptical about it. They had such a profound relationship, and then it fell apart. Um, because Jung had this whole vision of the spiritual as being part of uh, what awakening and what the inner life was, and Freud was really reactive to, and if you look honestly, frightened of that spiritual dimension. And so, in some way, Jung lost his father figure, lost his mentor, and the Red Book, um, or the journals that he started, the Black Book, happened within two months of that break with Freud. Um, and it was a kind of descent. Well, who am I now? What do I do at this time? Um, and he said, at first he was struggling with all these inner images that came in, inner figures, and then he said, I learned to take seriously the figures of the forest and the sky and every unknown wanderer. And even since a child, he'd been a visionary in some way. He'd been a mystic, and he writes about that. But as he started this journey, he shifted from his ordinary way of being, from what in Buddhism is called the small sense of self, or the body of fear is another word to it, to try to understand, well, if I'm not that, who am I? Um, and then the question is not the future of your life or the future of humanity but the presence of eternity, what it means to be connected to something that's timeless. And so he started to open, because he had no choice, really. All this stuff came. And then the various figures started to come to him. And the beautiful thing he did, which is somewhat related to the Buddhist practice of mindfulness, is he didn't just become these figures, the demonic figures, or the figures of coming out of the forest, or the kind of figures that um, biblical figures that would come and talk to him. He actually made a dialogue with them. They would come and say things to him, and he'd say, um, who are you to talk like that? Who do you think you are? And the capacity to be somehow, to have a discriminating wisdom, it's called in the Buddhist tradition, and have um, a mindful or thoughtful relationship to this incredible inner journey. And then what he found was, first, all the stuff he was afraid of. And that happens when you sit in meditation. It's very much the same. You sit in meditation, and even though the Jungian work is done as a solitary thing, or you know, in pairs in this very 
a kind of introverted container. In Buddhist practice, a lot of practice is also done in groups. It's because, as my friend Annie Lamott wrote, um, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone, you know? <laughs> so Jung, Jung didn't have that kind of help, so it made it harder for him. It was much, much harder for him. But what happened is all these figures, and when you sit quietly in meditation, what happens is the unfinished business of the heart. You just start to get quiet. The tensions you carry start to reveal themselves from the body. The grief that you might carry. And my friend Maladoma Somme, who is a West African shaman and medicine man, when he first came here, he said, your streets are full of the ungrieved dead. It's an amazing thing to say. He said, uh, as a shaman, he said, this is what I see and feel. He said, all the homeless people who've died, all the people who've died in ICUs without their family being there, all the people who die in old age homes, in our culture, everyone needs to be grieved or their spirit still wanders. And your culture is full of those who have not been grieved. Um, which means when we get quiet in some way, we also start to hear the voices that Jung heard or have to take that same kind of descent. And then he met all these different figures, as I talked about, and had to come to terms with these big questions, the question of human suffering, the question of identity, the question of good and evil from these figures. He had this dialogue with the devil. And it's very prophetic, this book. It's like Blake or Dante. And as you said so beautifully, um, it, Jung makes clear over and over, it's not your journey. This was his way. Um, all he could say to you, as you said so beautifully, is you now have to find your journey. Um, and so that, that sense of each of us in our life hitting a certain time or moment or maybe repeatedly, because initiation, mostly you know what it prepares you for? Further initiation. Right? <laughs> I mean, to sense as you grow, then you're able to grow further. But each of us will hit cycles where our life is really difficult. And we're called to come to terms with that difficulty and become wiser, freer, to shift our identity from what we've been in to something new. Um, but there aren't, last thing I'll say, I'm sort of babbling on, so forgive me. There aren't so many places in the culture, a place like the Jung Institute, the work that you do, and so forth, there aren't so many places that invite this level of soul. And I have a question for you in a minute, but I'm going to say one more thing. I work with gang kids um, doing retreats. And you know, kids coming out of gangs, we're going to do poetry, we're going to tell stories, we're going to do myths. Give me a break. You know, they'll sit in the back with their hats pulled down and like, poetry, right, man? You know, give me. What, what do you, you got something interesting? So then we will say, all right, before we start the retreat, we want to make a little altar and make a table and light a candle on it and say, before we can begin in this room, we want you to go outside and find a stone for every young person that you know who has died and bring it back. And when you place it on the table, simply say their name out loud. Some of these kids come back with their hands full of stones. No young person should know that many dead people. I mean, it is, you could weep just seeing them carry the stones. And then they put the stones on. This is RJ, you know, and this is Tiny, and this is, and they name their homies. And with a candle and those stones, all of a sudden, 
the room becomes a temple. It becomes a sacred space because what's weighing on their souls and what they carry um, now has a place to be revealed. When you work with people, I mean, here we're talking about the Red Book, but you really work with people as an analyst. And in that way, you invite people to go on their journey. How do you see, how do you sense the, you know, how, what is your invitation? Like those stones that we put on the table. Jung had it come to him. He was sort of, he was smacked on the side of the head. These figures just appeared and he couldn't do anything else. How do you invite people? How do you start the journey? I don't have a formula, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I think that it has to do with receptivity and with that there, there's something that we talk about in terms of unconscious to unconscious communication. And the people will come to see me and sometimes they they're there for a little while, and then they say, I, there's something I need to tell you. Mm. Mm. And often, um, it can be anything from something that they're very ashamed of, um, or that happened to them, or that they did to someone else, or a terrible loss. And if you think about not only the, the kids in the gangs, but look around the world. How many children grow up not knowing a lot of people who've been killed? Think about that in the world right now. So people experience terrible things, whether they grow up in a rich family or a poor family. But there also are a lot of people who come to Jungian work who have had non-ordinary experiences and they're afraid of being called crazy and I can remember myself going to my analyst and going to my consultant when I entered a very difficult time and I said you know should I be practicing because um, you know I'm just I'm waking up in the middle of the night with these incredible dreams and visions and and they, they said, yes, but you're perfectly in dialogue with them. And you know the difference between what's a vision and what's not a vision. And you're not identified with these things. And that was very comforting for me to hear. So I, a lot, we get a lot of people who have been diagnosed and judged and what Jung might call in the Red Book, according to the way of the this time. The, the way of this time uh, in mental health is the, the DSM. And uh, one of the people here, John Beebe, was involved in um, making it so that introversion wasn't considered pathological. It was <laughs> going to be <laughs> considered a diagnostic category. Now, maybe that, you know, we might have, it was a good thing, although, Wow, I bet we could have gotten um, insurance money for a lot of Jungian analyses. <laughs> That's right. Most of the Jungian world would get free therapy for that. That's very clever. So you know, every everything has a has its shadow. <laughs> um, 
So I think I sort of got a little tangential there, but That's great. That's great. <laughs> I'm just free associating here. That's Freudian. Sorry, I've got one. <laughs> uh, um, I, I did want to go back to um, what Jung said, um, just that you were talking about when he writes about refinding the soul on page 231. He said, when I had the vision of the flood, which um, you, is also referenced in the handout that I made for you, um, in the year 1913, it happened at a time that was significant for me as a man. At that time, in the 40th year of my life, I had achieved everything that I had wished for myself. I had achieved honor, power, wealth, knowledge, and every human happiness. I mean, he'd married the woman that he wanted to marry. He'd built this beautiful home. He was famous and powerful, traveled. Um, and he said, then my desire for the increase of these trappings ceased. The desire ebbed from me, and horror overcame me. The vision of the flood seized me, and I felt the spirit of the depths, but I did not understand him. Yet he drove me on with unbearable inner longing. And I said, my soul, where are you? Do you hear me? I speak, I call you, are you there? I have returned, I am here again. And he goes on. And um, one point I want to make is that he was, he had a strong ego. And sometimes we see young people um, who don't have strong egos want to go into a visionary place or they enter into a spiritual practice without their ego being developed and they feel like they've made great accomplishments in their practices. Um, and if they don't have someone who knows the territory, um, they can become, there's a real danger of becoming possessed and inflated by this material. One of our analysts, Don Sander, used to say, every time you have a great spiritual experience, um, you're going to um, get kind of knocked down to earth. <laughs> um, that there's always that kind of opposite effect. And again, that comes up, I think, the idea of initiation. The hero becomes inflated. And then um, I've been thinking about Obama a lot and how everything went so well for him. And now he's getting one blow after another. And I think the question, one question we, I have about him is this is his moment of initiation. Yeah. And will he, with the incredible pressures he has to deal with the times, will he be able to also go within to find what he needs um, for this time? It's an incredible challenge for any human being. But um, my hope is that given what I've read of what he wrote about his life, that he will find um, some new way that has integrity, but that will not, um, that will give him the strength to 
operate from a different place within himself, maybe would be the way I would say it. What, what, I wonder if you have some thoughts about that, Jack. Oh, I'm really glad to hear what you say, because I'm rooting for him, of course. But, you know, and it is a tough time. It's really, he's gone from the golden boy to the whipping boy, basically, in some fashion or other. Um, and you're, you're quite right that that becomes um, perhaps the toughest of initiation of his whole life. Um, I also love when you started talking about, you know, you try to make it individual for each person who comes in. Um, uh, what will be the way or what will create that, that container that we might call sacred space where they can tell the story of their grief or their shame or what their struggle is. You're wishing now that Obama would both have that place but also have the time to go inward to do that. Um, so that um, a real initiation, if you will, with very rare exceptions, and Jung's was a rare exception, needs to be witnessed. Because otherwise, you get kids trying to initiate themselves with guns and you know, high-speed car chases and things like that, trying to prove that they're a man or a woman. But without it being witnessed in some way, without what you provide is that witness to the soul, they can't come back and say, see, I killed the lion, and look you know, as a Maasai young man would, and, look at, and be seen as, as somebody who's in, in some way triumphed over difficulty and witnessed by their elders. Um, yeah, so for Obama, I think that collectively, if we can hold what you said so beautifully, if we can hold that he is in a descent and that there's going to be something that he learns that becomes stronger out of it, um, I hope so. So I, I would like to say a little bit more about initiation because I see this uh, Red Book very much as an initiatory journey. And you've done this, maybe you'll say some things afterward, because Diane has also done the Lakota Native American um, vision quest, if not the Sundance. And she's also done training in shamanic traditions and so forth. So for some reason, Jungian initiation wasn't enough for you. It's not, that, not putting it down or anything like that. But like me, I mean, I've done the same thing. There's something in you that called to say, uh, I really want to experience um, the spiritual through a number of different dimensions. Um, let me talk a little about initiation, maybe, or, uh, unless you, you want to. Okay, and, but, but I'd love to hear about that. What, what drew you to those other initiations? So initiation, which is absent in a conscious way a lot in our culture, and there's still bar mitzvah, but it doesn't quite do it, you know. Um, <laughs> or joining the military, or maybe going to college, or something like that. But really, it happens when your predictable, ordinary sense of self gets broken apart. And when the way you're living, which can be partly asleep, you're kind of on cruise control. And then there's something, in Greek it's called the katabas, which is the Greek word for a blow. Something happens, you get a cancer diagnosis, or the person you love is in grave trouble, or you know, you've lost your job and you can't get another in this economic downturn and you thought you knew who you were or, or some other thing, somebody, some other, you have a brush with death or some huge force comes or you have a breakdown, as you say, somehow even for these young people and what you mentioned about young people who are drawn to the spiritual tend to want to do the spiritual bypass. Okay, I'll do this beautiful light-sided thing and they don't they don't yet come to terms with their own fears and their own trauma and the 
kind of wounding they carry that needs to be married to make that a full initiation. But you all will have it. And of course, whether it's in Jungian work or in Buddhist tradition, in some way you actually seek it out. You say, all right, something in me is calling, I'm ready. And in Zen you go and you sit outside the Zen temple for three days in Tangario in the snow. And they won't let you in until you prove you're ready for an initiation. They'll say, okay, we got somebody sitting out there. I wonder how long they'll last. And they sit all day in the snow shivering. Well, day one, let's see if they last a couple more days. And after two or three days, they, okay, I think we got a live one, you know, and they open the gates and they say, this person, this person has enough energy and commitment in themselves to really face their humanity, to face the difficulties that you said, the hard stuff that we have. Um, and I know when I was living as a monk, there were certain times when I was excruciatingly lonely. I just thought I was going to die of loneliness. Or when we did practices around death and I kept having to see the different ways I might die or the people I loved would die, because it's part of Buddhist training to face death consciously. And sometimes it was fine, okay, I can do this. And sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes a great deal of fear would come. And I'd go see my teacher and he'd say, yes, this is the fear that we carry. And you have to bow to this. You can't, you can't ignore it. You know, and you don't want to let it take you over, which was Jung's relationship. You have to be somehow in dialogue. So we all have this blow. We all have something that will come to us, or our inner demons. And then as Jung found, you can't do it in a heroic way. The hero actually has to go out the window at some point. He says, it's not the way of the hero, but it's the way of not knowing, of Braille. Somerset Maugham said at some point, there are three rules for writing the great English novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. Right? <laughs> and that's kind of what you're saying about analysis or the journey, that you have to be willing in some way to face um, the, the not knowing, to face your loss, to face your aging, if that's what's there, or your illness, and to be willing to suffer which Jung did and you described, suffering in a, in a really um, honorable way. My teacher, Ajahn Chah, when I got to the monastery, he looked at me coming in, he said, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. That was like his greeting, you know, like not how come have a good time. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, there are two kinds of suffering. There's a suffering you run from that follows you everywhere. And the suffering you turn and face so that honorably so that you can find a deeper freedom. And if you're interested in that, come into these gates. Welcome here. And so whether it's you know, our loneliness or boredom, which come incredibly, and meditation can be terribly boring. You sit there, oh my god, I saw this cartoon in, that showed a car crossing the Utah desert, you know, that vast landscape, um, and um, a roadside billboard, and it said, your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles, right? Okay. <laughs> Sometimes in meditation, you get, you can open to mystical experiences and there are ways to dissolve your body into light and have all kinds of luminous things. Of course, then you come down after some time, as, as you said, Diane. But sometimes, it's again like what Jung had, it's a slog and you meet the parts that are difficult and and the question for you is, what is it that you, need, that you run from? 
the, because that's your gateway. Jung found this gateway into the underworld, you know, in some way through the cave or lifting the hatch or going underneath. The place that's difficult is actually the place that you say, all right, I'm going to turn and be with the boredom or the fear or the anxiety or the grief or the loneliness or whatever, and let that be a gateway and become curious, where will this lead? And then voices or things that want you to be whole, that want to speak from, a, from the depths, will, will come to you. And that's really part of what meditation is in some way. So we, we need to find in our, in our own lives some form of initiation, whether it's Jungian analysis or whether it's um, depths of meditation or whether it's a shamanic journey as you've done. Um, and I think a li life lived without it, um, for most people, then is a life that's lived in some way on the surface. Um, and I don't say that pejoratively. I say it, if anything, with a sense of sadness um, for all the people, because you're not those people for the most part. You are the crazy ones who are you know, doing the descent in some way. But I say it for all the people either who are going through it with no support, because in, in poverty or whatever, or who, who have forgotten that that call to, to deepen is really central to making the heart come alive. Well, so. I, I just want to say that um, I don't want to congratulate you too much here. Um, because we all have these parts of ourselves that are on automatic pilot or that are uh, wanting approval of the times. I mean, of course we do. We're human beings. and. And this is something that we work on all our lives. And uh, maybe if we have other lives, we keep working on it then, too. <laughs> um, but, but as you said, one initiation leads to another. And, uh, and so even if you've done something significant, it, it's not like you can just wipe your hands and go, OK, done. Good job. Um, it's not going to be like that. Um, I want to read you something from the, the Red Book, Jack, um, that relates to the, I think, a New, the New Yorker cartoon that you, you mentioned. Um, uh, he says, Jung said uh, something that reminded me a lot of meditation practice. He said, um, this is on page 236 of the English translation, um, I also had to detach myself from my thoughts through turning my desire away from them. I think that's remarkable for uh -huh. somebody who hadn't studied Vipassana or uh -huh. another form of meditation. In a past life, he did, yes. Yes, he did. <laughs> he thought he, yes, <laughs> he, he may have. And at once, I noticed that myself became a desert where only the sun of unquiet desire burned. I was overwhelmed by the endless infertility of this desert. Even if something could have thrived there, the creative power of desire was still absent. Wherever the creative power of desire is, there springs the soul's own seed. But do not forget to wait. Reminds me of Milton, those also serve who only stand and wait. Mm. Or T.S. Eliot, you know, that um, love is in the waiting, it's not in the action. Yeah. And I said to my soul, be still. Be still and wait. Um, and that stance of being willing to wait, or being, as you say, the witness where you step back from believing your thoughts, but at the same time, don't discard them. 
is really part of what it means, um, what it means to wed a kind of inquiry which Jung had, or this very deep interest um, and attention um, with experience, where you're, it's the middle path that he found, where you're neither lost in experience nor have you turned away from it. Um, you actually have to have a relationship to it, but not the relationship that's completely swept away by it. Um, and to, to learn that in many ways is the central art in meditation. People think meditation is a way of, of discarding or getting away, kind of getting you know the spiritual bypass, going over things. But in fact, it, it is, as Zen Master Dogen said, to be enlightened is to become intimate with each thing as it comes. Um, intimate and at the same time not lost or swept away by it. So that's such a, that, that's such a beautiful passage. Well, that, that, kind, of, that kind of intimacy um, brings up for me the, a kind of a feeling of being alive, of, 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 ha of things being really alive in the moment. Um, that with, all, with shape and color and texture, and they're there, and you're not in the future and you're not in the past, but it's just vivid, that vivid quality of being alive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see it, I mean, I see it in my own meditation if I've been able to have a quiet day or a quiet week and I go back outside and the bay trees and the, you know, the movement of light and the field, and all of it, it, there's a kind of newness to it that comes just because I've let myself become quiet. And I'm a, I'm a pretty speedy and busy person, kind of speed freak type. <laughs> and, and stopping, which I, I think it's why I learned meditation, really, is because I needed it so much. Um, it opens something, or I watch people come on retreat to Spirit Rock, and the first two or three days of a week or 10 day retreat, you know, they're just blown around by all the tensions and worries and storms and thoughts and so forth. And after a few days, things begin to settle down and by the end, they'll go out and you see somebody walking outdoors and it's like they're two years old again and they feel their foot on the grass like they haven't felt since they were a little girl or a little boy and their faces look clearer and just what you say, there's this kind of newness. And again, it's a question, what brings that newness into your life? You know, is it walking in the mountains and is it listening to music? It, it, it always needs some silence. There's some part of us that also longs for this silence, that we can't hear what's deeper without having silence. And, and it, that's so hard to find in our world. I mean, how many uh, people um, really have silence and are not listening to a Walkman or when I was training and, and uh, doing home visits, how many people I saw who uh, were, had a television on and a radio on at the same time. Uh, and it's like not only their own thoughts, or when I worked with disturbed adolescents and did home visits, and you know, there'd be so much stimulation going on, and one of the biggest fears is, is the fear of silence now. Um, and I guess that kind of, um, I want to check with you, it kind of segues for me into the way that Jung wrote the Red Book as um, using calligraphy and painting, which was something I wanted to mention, but I 
don't know how that fits with the flow, and I well, don't have a watch. Well, let's use some of the images, because you also talked about seeing, and mm -hmm. kind of seeing anew, and, and um, uh, it would be beautiful to look at some of the images from the book and kind of talk about those, and I know you brought some. So, so maybe um, we could have the next uh, slide. Um, what I wanted to say is that Jung had a spe the special uh, book commissioned, and he did it like a medieval manuscript, where the words, um, words aren't something that you, you type in an email. That's great. Or, that's great, Bonnie, yeah. Um, but he made these illuminated first letters, and we get the sense that a word holds an image, and that word and image are not separate, and that words are not just something like you type in a text message, that there's a kind of feeling of the sacredness of word, and I, it, it um, he said in, in the Red Book, he said, uh, notice what the ancients said in images. The word is a creative act. The ancients said in the beginning was the word. Consider this and think upon it. The words that oscillate between nonsense and supreme meaning are the oldest and the truest. It starts getting very paradoxical. But what, what I find so meaningful in this with the color and the image is that they come together, that words um, and images are not split apart the way they can be in our culture, in our, um, our thinking minds where all these words are racing through and we're not still enough to see what words come from within connected with images. And probably most of you know that when we deal with poetry or paradox or word and image together, we're using more of our brain than we do if we're just thinking thoughts in a logical way or simply free associating one image to the next. Um, and it, can I have the next slide? Um, the, in medieval times, the letters and writing had a sacred quality in themselves, and they were associated with sounds. And we think of like the sounds that vibrate our bodies, and the chanting, and sounds that, that um, were also thought to be important in transformation, like the alchemists, would um, play certain music when they were doing certain transformations in the laboratory. Um, so that words and images were not so separated as they are. And the act of writing was an act of contemplation. Uh, next slide. Um, and this is a, a page from uh, one of my practice books. And in a Tibetan Buddhist practice, one of the things in a longer practice that you do is to say the letters. And the letters of the um, Tibetan alphabet are so beautiful. And they have 
a beautiful shape and form, but also their sounds, and you chant the sounds that are, there are the vibration of uh, the sacred thing. And um, when I was talking to um, Ellen Becker about this, she um, pointed out to me too that in, uh, in Jewish mysticism that it's also the space, the space around the letters. And so, and we see that in Zen, that the space, the space that is in the room, the sp not the space that we see as occupied, although we're all, it's all energy or something that we don't know how to name here, but it's also the quality of the space and the, the pauses um, and the, that vibration of the, of the sound. So when we make sounds, um, what are we do? What are we putting out into the world when we speak, or we play music, or we make sounds that are rough and and uh, 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 difficult to bear? Uh, du uh, ones that are dukkha, not sukha, we might say. So anyway, I just wanted to bring that up. That this is the kind of um, attitude of respect of something coming from within that Jung um, had when he was writing the Red Book. And that's my association to it. So I, I want to show, here we go. This is one of the mandalas that are drawn in the Red Book um, that, that Jung made. Um, and the mandalas really came to him spontaneously. He didn't know about mandala drawing per se, um, but rather they were his attempt to put together the pieces of his life in some way as he took his descent. And you know what you, what you said about um, space or silence. When there's silence, then for Jung, the, the opposite started to appear and there would be joy and sorrow, or there would be the devil, and there would be also the voice of that which is holy. And he thought at first that they were separate, and he would lean as we do toward what was holy and beautiful, and the devil would say, no, 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 you have to include me too. And then at some point, Jung had this profound revelation that the place of liberation for himself was not to get rid of some part of himself or some part of the experiences that came, but in, to sense that they were part of a greater whole, that they were part of a dance or, or the Tao in some way. And his mandalas are really representations of the energies that he encountered, the energy of shame and the energy of joy together, or the energy of the East and the West, of things being born and of things dying, actually being part of some sacred whole. And he became silent, as you said. He became still enough. Um, so that he could feel that place of, of emptiness first, which was scary and difficult. And within it, things could then display their connection rather than the fragmentation. So the next slide, please, is um, a Tibetan mandala, very, very similar. And the, the gates of the mandala speak about the, the different directions of the Buddhas that exist in the cosmos. And this is really a depiction of, of um, an awakened mind. Um, and if you were to explore it carefully, 
Each of those gates has different qualities and different illuminations, much as in Jung's previous mandala. Could we have the next slide, please? So this is, this is a mandala of Jung in which he is trying to bring together the opposites, which was one of the great revelations um, in the transformation of the Red Book that he found in, in his descent that he couldn't ignore the crudeness um, or the, he met all these figures that represented quite difficult parts of our, our psyche, of, of our world. He met the, the lout, this guy who was very crude, and he didn't want to have anything to do with him. And then after a while he realized, hey, wait a second, there's something about that that's familiar. I have that part. Or he met, you know, the scholar, and, but then he realized, because he was a scholar, oh, maybe scholars aren't all that great. You know, there's something else, or he met the, you know, the prostitute or the harlot. I don't have anything to do with you, and then realized that was a part of himself. Um, and bit by bit, by being in relation to what arose, he began to sense um, that there was a wholeness of his psyche or of his being from which he could live that was much wiser and more beautiful, if you will, much truer than you know, what his mind thought he was supposed to be. And these are really diagrams of the relationship. If you look on the left in the center, just in the first ring outside the colored ones um, on the left, there's a kind of a, a, a snake and a phallus that's there, that's sort of the erotic um, phallic uh, image of the earthiness of body. And then if you look on the opposite side, on the right, hand side, just outside the dark colored area, there's a dove which represents um, the Holy Spirit in some way. And this is the union of this mystery of our life that you have to remember your Buddha nature or your sacred nature, but also your animal nature, or as Ramdas used to say, you have to remember your Buddha nature and your social security number, that, those, <laughs> that somehow, somehow the immediate life that you live and the fact that you are a, a being who's come in before you were born with this amazing spirit have to become wedded. And this is what Jung tried to do, but he's saying to you, you have to do this. You have to find your way to, to wed these pieces together. Um, and uh, I could go on with this, and there's the, you know, there's sort of heavenly figures at the top, and then the figures at the bottom, um, uh, I'm trying to remember, wish I had it in front of me, it's a little hard to read. Anyway, go to the next slide and I'll, I'll show you the figures at the bottom are, um, in, in Jung's slide, were, were ones where there was conflict and difficulty. And this is the, the mandala of the Buddhist wheel of life. Um, and it too is a diagram of the psyche. It's not just a kind of nice, you know, sacred anthropological picture. Um, but in the center are the forces of instinct that govern life, the pig and the snake um, and the rooster, which represent greed and hatred and delusion in their unawakened form, but can be awakened into the wisdom of, of um, clarity and love and so forth. Um, and then you see in the next ring out from the center, beings who are, who are either ascending or descending in the different realms around the bottom realm is the Buddhist hell realms. There are realms of the animals and the hungry ghosts. And then you go up to the human realms and the realms of the gods and the realms of the angels and devas. Um, and outside of that 
is the ring of the cycle of dependent origination that describes how you have the experiences of the world impacting consciousness. And then if you take them to be real and get lost in them, the contact and the feeling, pleasure, un displeasure, and you get lost, then there arises reaction, clinging, craving, and you go in the, the cycle that, that wheels you again and again through these different realms inwardly. But all held by the great god Yama, the god that represents birth and death. But then if you see up in the upper right-hand corner, there's the Buddha standing there um, uh, with a hand up, which is the gesture of fearlessness, saying, do not be afraid. When you understand that this is the, just the discipling of humanity and spirit together, it's possible to step out or to have such a spacious perspective, as Jung did through this red book in its culmination, say, oh, this is the dance that we're a part of, and now I can live differently, because I'm not afraid of the depth. I'm connected with the spirit and who I really am, and so I can go back to the world and bless it. Um, and he says here, it's like a bodhisattva vow, he says, there were things in these images which concern not only myself, but many others also because it started to become more and more universal. It was then that I ceased to belong to myself alone, ceased to have the right to do so. And from then on, my life belonged to the collective. I myself had to undergo the original experience, which was difficult facing all these parts of himself. And moreover, to plant the results of my experience in the soil of reality, otherwise they would have remained subjective assumptions. I had to live through this. But then, it was then that I dedicated myself to the service of the psyche and to all. And so this is like Jung's Bodhisattva vow. When he went through this initiation, he realized, I'm not separate from the world, and this is my gift. And in truth, um, we're not happy if we can't bring our gift to life. We each are born into this cycle of birth and death. We're born into this human life with some particular gifts. And the most profound thing is to be able to know what that gift is to go through the sum process that gets you in touch with it, and then to be able to bring your unique, authentic gift. It's where we started with Ellen and Diane speaking about uniqueness. Um, a couple more slides just to, just to show. So Jung did all these beautiful paintings. And people might say, well, that's great for Jung, or that's great for Diane. Maybe she'll show her own paintings. Um, but I'm not a painter. You know, when I was in third grade, my teacher said, you can't paint. That doesn't look like an elephant or a house. And I haven't painted since. You know, they shame you. They do. But it's true. You know, or I don't have an art. So this is a sandplay collection. This is my wife Liana's sandplay collection. And another way to do it, even if you don't think you're an artist, is to do Jungian sandplay therapy. There's a little sandbox there. And then thousands of figures of trees and houses and cars and angels and devils and every other kind of animal. And, and so forth. And then. And, and Jack, there's a desert there. Uh, there's a desert there. There's a beautiful desert waiting for whatever wants to happen. And you're invited to make a scene. So then the next slide, people make scenes. And this is basically your meditation coming out and being come visible. The, the person made a scene, and you can see that they had a number of energies inside themselves because you pick what's going on in there. There's the gorilla, and there's the devil figure, and the stop sign, and the musical instrument. And they're starting to find, like Jung did, a relationship to what is in themselves. 
Next slide, please. Oh, wait, wait a second. Oh, okay, is, that, is there a heart in the center of that? There is. is Leanna, There's is a heart, that, and, the, the heart and a fire, and the fire, like a heart. Both and the fire. Yeah. And stop. And That's stop. important, too. And music. Oh, so rich. And okay. Diane, of course, does, along with her analysis, does this sand play work with people. So it's a simple way for people who say, oh, I'm not an artist, to begin to allow what's in them to reveal themselves. A couple more slides. We'll go through them. So here's one sometimes without little, literal symbols, but this is a tray that somebody made that displays the energy within them that they were encountering. In order to come to some wise relationship, to feel it and sense it and live it in some way. And you can feel this is the desert, but it's also the desert beginning. If you trust the desert, at some point it rains. And it begins to bloom, doesn't it? And it, it begins to bloom. And as an analyst or as a Buddhist meditation teacher, you begin to learn to trust silence and, and, and void and emptiness and desert and say, cool, we're in the desert. I wonder when it's going to rain. I wonder what's going to bloom. Or we're in the desert. Or we're in the desert. Let's be in the desert. We're and we might desert. be in the desert for a thousand years. Oh, how interesting. Moses was there 40 years. Let's see what happens. <laughs> but you know, sooner or later, something happens. Next slide. So well, this, I, I would disagree. You, yeah. you don't always know. Sometimes you just are in absolute despair. And you have to sit with that with someone. As an analyst, um, you're not on to like, well, what's next? I completely you, agree with you. And as an analyst, yeah. you have to know that if you sit with the desert for an hour or a month or a year of despair, even though you don't say anything, you keep your mouth shut, you know Maybe. that someday it's going to change because everything changes. You can't let them know, but yet you do know it. <laughs> Come on, mess up. I mean, we're giving away secrets here. Yes, you have, but you have to be you've been present. There. You've been in the desert. Yeah, That's you're not right. getting rid of the desert. You have to actually love the desert. You have to come and say, all right, I'm dead. This is what death is like, and just live there. Exactly. Fully, completely. Exactly, and not go too quickly to. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. But there's we a agree. little secret that you. <laughs> so this is what starts to come out of this. This is one person's image of what wanted to be born out of them when all those energies started to come together. Um, we'll do a couple more. I don't want to take more time with it. Uh, this is another one, and if you can see, it's a little hard to see that that, sur that sort of circular or arch in the middle is actually a cave. And this is the blue like water or sky at the bottom of the sand tray. We're looking down on it. And in the middle of that cave, you see um, you know, there's a little village up at the top, and there's a, there's a temple or something at the bottom. And in the middle of the cave, you see that figure uh, that looks like a jewel. And here's the, the language from Jung. He had this dream after he was sick. He said, I had this marvelous dream, one bluish diamond like a star high in the heaven reflected in a round, quiet pool. Heaven above, heaven below, the imago dei in the darkness of earth. This is myself. And what happens, whether it's in meditation or in analysis or in the beauty of this sand play process, is when you go through the desert and you have also the, 
the beasts and the figures and all the instinctive parts of yourself come and relate to one another, that at some point in that stillness, um, some new extraordinary wholeness appears, which is who you really are. And it's not that you make it or that your analyst kind of tries to get you there, just so you, you can't. It ha it's like a garden. It can only, the plants can only come up when they're ready. Um, but something happens, and you see it in this person's tray as beautifully as what Jung described. And they never read Jung. They never read this image. It came because it's there in the human heart, in this spirit. And those of us who do this depth work, whether it's as a shaman or in the initiation that you did with the Lakota or sand play or analysis, somehow make the temenos, the sacred space, that people can have to be still enough to let that eventually that wants to be born in them come alive. Reminds me, um, I'm thinking maybe we can, I can segue into a little bit about play, but what you just said reminds me of sometimes a, a kid will come in to see me and they'll say, where's your television? <laughs> and what do you say? What kind of office is this? <laughs> and I uh, say, I don't have one. What do you mean you don't have a television? <laughs> And uh, it, it tells me a lot about that kid. Um, but I wonder if we could, is that your last slide, Jeff? Yes, it is. Um, so I wonder if we could go back to my slides. Um, and um, because after, um, what I wanted to bring up was something a little bit about play. Um, that you see in, in, the, in the Red Book, there's just this anguish, this suffering that's... Um, and then there's this wonderful thing. I just love this creature. Um, and there's this... Suddenly this kind of childlike quality comes out, and you see it... That this, this poor creature looks more frightened than it is frightening. And there, if you... Um, next slide. Um, if you look at the, um, the borders, around that uh, painting, you see how childlike and playful it is. Um, and I want you to, to look um, on the left-hand side in the middle. There's something that's kind of like a dragon or some kind of creature. And inside, there's like a, a, a person who's inside there in the dark, as if they're being incubated. But then look how playful it is on the bottom, where um, can you see it? Um, on the bottom, where there's this, this um, somebody's there and is kind of lying down and waving. <laughs> and I just love that. And then if you look on the right, you can see that there are these different figures contained in different ways and open in different ways. And um, on the the one that is to the left, you can also see it's very childlike kind of drawing of like a, um, a sun there that has rays and, and eyes and is kind of lopsided, um, as well as soldiers, you know, a little think of boys playing with tin soldiers and that kind of very childlike thing that happens. And uh, next slide. Um, there's a, a saying in alchemy um, which um, Jung spent much of his life um, after the Red Book studying alchemy. Um, and he, and this is a, um, a picture from the Splendor Solace, um, 
a, uh, a, a, pain, a, a very refined version of uh, an alchemical treatise with paintings. And it's, wherefore, is, wherefore is this art compared to the play of children who, when they play, turn undermost that which was uppermost? And isn't that what kind of what we're talking about? Turning, oh, sorry, turning things upside down. Thank you. Um, so you can, you can see how his experience in the Red Book really resonated with his later interest in alchemy. Next slide. Um, I wanted to tell you about something that happened to me. How are we doing on time, Jack? Do this, please, and okay. then we'll do another. Well, I, um, I'm not an artist. I have no artistic talent whatsoever. I'm one of those people that he was talking about. But um, I did a sand play process that was so powerful because I was very intellectual. And it, it, it got my body going and started a deep inner embodied process for me. And um, I went to Italy. And I'd spent a few weeks looking at mosaics, especially the floors in, uh, in Venice and Ravenna and places like that. And I, I, I was absolutely had to start making some sketches. Now here's what's so, uh, and this, this alchemical saying that I hardly even knew anything about alchemy. I'd started analysis, I wasn't in analytic training, I'd sort of started reading Jung. And the saying is, as it is above, so it is below, as it is below, so it is above. Well, I had this problem that I thought was about my laundry room. And this is the most mundane thing. It's so, and I've never shown this before, but when I was meeting with Jack last month, it came to my mind and I thought, okay, we'll see what happens. I'll try talking about this. Well, in my laundry room where I lived, there were these blank cupboards and they really bothered me because they were just tacky and blank and they were above the machines. And I don't like machines. I just didn't like machines. I don't like the noise they make. And, I, and yet, there was my laundry room, and I had to go in there and look at these blank cupboards. And, and so, and then suddenly it came to me that I would paint. Um, I was really getting tired of doing hand wash, and I was really glad to get back to my washer and dryer. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll paint something and put it on these cupboards. And when I sold this house, I took the, the, these doors that I hated, I actually took them with me. <laughs> I said, they don't go with the house anymore, they're mine. And this is what happened. Um, I did it with incredible intensity and measuring lines and things. But this is my washing machine. This is my symbolic washing machine. That's what, it, that's what it turned out to be. And the next one, that's my symbolic dryer. <laughs> and, the, and the next one, um, it was um, the symbolic utility sink. <laughs> and there was one for the clothesline, because um, there was a fourth cupboard, but that got damaged at some point. And just looking back at these, I realized, wow, I, those little shapes I made over here are like little moons, and that's the sink. And look at those opposites kind of, kind of coming together. And I had no idea that I, what I was painting. 
And I had no idea that um, at the time that what I really was upset about was something in myself, of course, an inner problem, and that something had to come. The thing that I hated the most, these machines and this, this drudgery of laundry and having to go into this little room to do it, and I, you know, I'd been, tra I've traveled a lot of places, and you know, those wonderful villages where all the women get together and wash the clothes together. I mean, like, why don't we do that anymore? You know, I, I didn't like this kind of isolation. So the next slide, much, much later, when I was working with the Splendor Solace material with Joseph Henderson, um, I came across um, this image in the Splendor Solace. And it's actually a well-known alchemical image, is that the work of alchemy is like women washing clothes. That all of the processes in alchemy of salutio, um, solificatio, all those things that, if you've read Edinger, you probably are from, or Jung, all of them are found in these humble tasks of daily life. And, um, and so this just made, just gave me chills when I saw this. And because it felt like part of what was going on in my psyche at that time, and that it was maybe 25 or 30 years ago when I did that, was that I was beginning to experience the numinosity of ordinary life. And, um, and that, was just so profound for me. And it's something that has stayed with me. And so I want to pass this back to you, Jack, because it, it feels so, to me, so consonant with, um, with Buddhist teaching. Mm. Thank you. God, those are so beautiful. Um, and I did write so a book called. That's all the slides. I did write a book called After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. So we have a relationship in that way. Um, yeah, but then there's the ecstasy while you're doing the laundry. That's right. And then after the laundry, more laundry, or something like that, right? But. Um, it, what Jung was trying to do and what you depicted so beautifully was somehow the wedding of that which is sacred um, or the discovery of that which is sacred in the reality of the present, that it's not some other place. It's in the laundry room, you know, or it's in the tacky. Jung said, well, I don't like what's tacky. He had that same, same issue, you know, and then all of a sudden, well, that too becomes this too, that Zen phrase, this too is included becomes part of the uh, opening. Um, I also love the image of the caterpillar in there because when a caterpillar goes into a chrysalis, um, it doesn't sprout wings. It dissolves, actually, into this mass of cells to reorganize itself. And then it has what the biologists call, there appear what are called imaginal cells. Um, and the imaginal cells are the ones that picture that they can fly. And they start getting all the other cells to go along with the program and build this incredible creature with huge butterfly wings that hatches out. And in some way, I see our journey as falling apart at times in our life, as, you know, and then finding that in that falling apart, there, there's an imagination of something that, um, that's wholly different than we knew ourselves to be and much freer. Um, 
That's the we, last. We did, yeah, that's that, the last slide. So we could. We did. We off. also did. Um, we used to wash our robes in the monastery in that way. You know, we would go and there was a washing place where all the monks would take their robes down to the water and do the same thing. And there was something very healing because everybody knew, yeah, you were doing the outer wash, but just as you say, that's, that's the outer symbol of, of something different uh, and something more profound inwardly. And my teacher even used to say that he said, some of your meditation practice is really like putting you through the laundry, you know, and all the dirt comes out and you keep sitting and something else will re be revealed. That's, that's so alchemical, isn't it? It's a, it is, very, very much. I'm so impressed with the way this, the way you quoted Jung about needing to go back into the world and how I can remember as I was getting into my Jungian analysis and I felt so lonely and so isolated and and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to be even more lonely and more isolated because I'm getting weirder and weirder. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm, who, who will, who's going to have anything to do with me, you know? And I have no choice in this, really. And just the opposite happened. And um, because I, I felt, I discovered something that made me feel more connected with other human beings mm -hmm. and other, not just other human beings, but with stones, with plants, with, um, and, and it was as if everything had spirit. Mm. And that the spirit isn't something, I mean, we're lucky to have this human birth and to be able to do this conscious reflecting but feeling the spirit in everything um, made me feel much, you can't be alone if that's part of, it, if that's in the world with you. So beautiful. And that I hear both your Jungian training but also your Native American practice in some way of that, everything being alive. This is Eduardo Galeano, Latin poet who writes, the church says the body is a sin and Jung had to really wrestle with that in his Science says the body is a machine. There's your machines. The marketplace says the body is good business. The body says, I am a fiesta. <laughs> and things start to come alive when you, well, when you pay attention to them. But it's also, as you said, Jung said this was miserable. It wasn't all so, so easy. So this is Helen Keller, who she says, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature nor do children as a whole experience it. You know, ch childhood is rocky, it is. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. And so Jung, th the Red Book in some way is like um, Jung's Bodhi tree, when the Buddha sat down under the Bodhi tree and had to deal with the forces of Mara and you know, of greed and fear and desire and confusion and doubt and so forth. Jung had to deal with those same forces and somehow find a freedom or a reconciliation of heaven and earth in himself as the Buddha did. And you do too, I do too, to live with an open heart, to live freely. And so what I want to do is offer a guided meditation for you now. Um, We'll do it, it'll be maybe eight minutes or something and then a little conversation and some questions afterward. 
Um, especially because in the Jungian world, why don't you stand up for a second, just a moment, stretch your body. You've been sitting forever. And when you feel like you've stretched comfortably, let yourself sit back down. And in the many forms of meditation, there's the meditation of breath or vipassana, mindfulness practice of being aware of feelings and thoughts and, and the body and so forth. There are also meditations of visualizations, um, parallels between Jungian and, and uh, the Buddhist world. Um, and one of the first visualizations that I learned was going into a cave. It's interesting, and I thought about it before doing this Red Book series. Um, uh, even before the Red Book was out, I was invited to do uh, a dialogue like this down in Southern California with the, uh, with the Jung Institute down there. And I thought, well, maybe I'll do this cave meditation. And then I started reading the Red Book and saw that it was the entry into a cave at one point and all the things that Jung found as he entered the cave that, that was a central image. And I said, okay, this is, this is the way to go. Um, and visualization, some people say, oh, I can't visualize. But if you sit here, you don't have to close your eyes yet. Remember what you had for dinner. Remember what it looked like on the plate when it was served to you? Remember how much you ate and what was left on your plate when you were done? You can picture that. That's a visualization. That's, it's that simple. It's just seeing with the mind's eye and becoming present to, to notice. So we're going to do a little guided imagery or guided meditation and just let yourself see, like Jung took a journey, what wants to reveal itself because you are on a journey. And this isn't really taking you anywhere. It's simply, as Diane said, making the space so that something that's carried can reveal itself should it want to tonight. So let your eyes close gently and take a few deeper breaths just to allow yourself to center and be here, centering breaths, just to be present. And as you sit quietly, you, of course, could meditate on the mystery of this human body seated here halfway between heaven and earth, um, however you got in here, and what it's like to be conscious, this amazing mystery. But here we're going to visualize a little bit. So as you sit, I'd like you to imagine, picture, think of any way you can, that you're out in the woods or the forest, some beautiful place you've been, you can remember. And you're wandering in these beautiful woods, some forest that you know. And as you wander, you discover to your surprise that you come to the entrance of a cave. And it feels quite benevolent. This isn't a scary cave necessarily but really an inviting cave. And it's amazing that you'd never seen it before, but here it is. And it's large enough that you can walk in, picture, imagine, think of, visualize any way you can. But before you walk in, to make sure that it's safe and clear for you, right inside the door is a lamp or a torch that you can pick up in your hand to illuminate your journey into the cave. So pick up the lamp or the torch 
and carry it into this cave and you'll enter three rooms. As you walk into this cave and walk along, the first room that you come to when you enter, not quite yet, will have within it a figure of a guide, some being known or unknown, human, animal, some being that will guide you into the underworld. And when you let yourself enter this room, just as Dante had Beatrice or Virgil, when you enter this room in this cave, there will be some guide who greets you. Let yourself now enter and you don't have to think of it, but let some image, picture, thought, imagination just show itself. Who might guide you into the depths and allow it to come as it will, Lem to come. And this guide is benevolent. This guide really wants to show you this spirit guide. and pay attention, greet them with some respect. If you wish, you can ask their name or simply feel their energy, their essence. And now this being this guide, human or otherwise, says, follow me, let me show you some things. And so you leave this first room of the cave and go deeper to the next room, which is a treasure room. And with the guide, they take you into the room illuminated and there is a chest, a box, a treasure chest. And the guide will open it for you and in a moment when they open the treasure chest, you will find a gift which is a clear symbol of just what you need for the next stage of your journey. Let the guide open this chest, imagine, picture, visualize what it's like. And as the chest opens, this clear symbol of just what you need for the next stage of your journey of life, inner journey, will appear. Hold your torch up to it. See it in the light. Sense it, understand it. And when you take this clear symbol, for you can now take it in your hand from this treasure chest, take it with you, your guide will move over to you and whisper into your ear a few words of advice of what this symbol means or what you need to continue your journey. Listen, imagine, hear, sense what they have to say. And now hearing their words and taking this symbol of what you need to continue your journey, they lead you to the third room. And when you enter the third room, there will be an altar. And on this altar will be a symbol 
or a thing, a being, a figure, a picture of what unseen calls you from the depths, of what you need to come to terms with in this next stage of your journey to fulfill your destiny, to awaken. So enter this room with your guide and your torch, and there on the altar will be the figure, the being, the picture of what you need to come to terms with. So important for the depths of your journey to carry you. And let yourself know you can know and see as Jung did with the eyes of wisdom that come in relation to this. You carry your own wisdom and yet this symbol or whatever reveals itself to you is an energy that is also asking your relationship. And now, with the gifts that you were given from the treasure chest, the words of advice from your guide, and now this look at what you need to come to terms with, what calls from the depths. Take what you've gathered and let yourself come back to this room from the cave, knowing what you have learned and carrying it with you as a treasure. let your eyes open. And I'll just ask a couple questions of you. First, um, what kind of figures, guide figures came? If anyone feels comfortable, just to name who came. See who came into this room. Barn owl. A barn owl. A snake. What'd she say? A snake. A snake, thank you. A U.S. Park, park ranger to guide you. Beautiful. I have a friend who's a park ranger who would make a great spirit guide. Yes, others. A flame. Thank you. An old man with a staff. A tornado. A tornado. Fantastic. A bat. Wonderful. Did the Dalai Lama come? I'm just curious. To anybody? He usually comes, but not always. Okay, who else? What else came? Shout out. Yeah? Claudio Naranjo as a guide. Beautiful. So tornadoes and, and barn owls and, 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 and bats and, and, you know, and wisdom figures like Claudio and, you know, all of a sudden, the room got filled with spirit guides of all different kinds. Now, and how long did that take? Two minutes for the guide to appear. Where are they? Duh. Where are they? Right? It doesn't take very long. All right. So um, if anyone would want to mention a symbol of the treasures that you got, of something that would help you on this journey, just to name them really simply. A double dorje, the thunderbolt, which is the thunderbolt of clarity or truth in the Tibetan tradition. 
What else came? A lens. A lens. Lovely. Thank you. A brass skeleton key. A brass skeleton key. Is that right? Fabulous to open things. Wonderful. A golden light. A golden light. There was somebody way in the back. Yes. A rock. And this is important because these are like dream images. And so there's something that you want to tend and hold and, and carry over the next days. And also, it's not a bad thing to get them. It would be great to go out and get a brass skeleton key, you know, or a stone that was like that stone, you know, or a crystal if that came. I don't know about getting the tornado part, but you know. Um, but in some ways, also making it concrete can be beautiful. But living with it, draw it, put it in your journal. This is information from the psyche that says, here's a guide for you. Here's a treasure that will help you. The, the, you know, the rock, the crystal, the the skeleton key, the skeleton key is a really great image because what are the skeletons that it wants to unlock? You know, you start to hear the richness of these symbols. So in this eight minutes, you did, and many of you have gone on your journeys, you did in some ways what Jung was doing in the Red Book. You had this invitation to go and say, what is it in this heart and mind and deeper in the depth of the psyche that calls? What would be a guide? What's an invitation? What's a gift? And then I didn't ask you the question of what was on that altar, you know, that you need to come to terms with. And, and I would, would say, why don't you hold that in your heart? Because that's the thing that you need to come to terms with. So in a way, that's the thing that is most sacred for you right now. Mm. That's my thought, Jack. Mm. And I think we're coming to the end of our time. Uh, we so. are, we are. Um, I want to say a couple little things then, and maybe <laughs> okay. you, you will too. We have a few minutes, it's okay. Um, three minutes, five minutes. Um, this is from Albert Camus, and, and it seems terribly important to say. He writes, we all carry within us our places of exile, our crimes, our ravages. Our task is not to unleash them on the world. It is to transform them in ourselves and, and therefore be a gift to others. And which is what Jung said in that bodhisattva vow thing that I read. And in some way, you can't separate the tragedies and the suffering of the world, which you carry in your heart, all those images and from the television, and whether it's Afghanistan or Darfur or wherever it happens to be, with the inner work that we have to do. And to the extent that we are willing to face the desert or the desolation or to take the descent that these images invite, to that extent we become freer and become a gift. As Thich Nhat Hanh said, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained centered and calm, it was enough. It showed the way for the others to survive. And so your willingness to do the kind of journeys that Diane holds in her analysis or that Jung depicts in the Red Book or that one gets in you know, the Native American tradition or through the Buddhist practice is really what frees you to be of a gift to the world. And in that, I really want to honor the journey and honor also the images that you showed, the paintings you showed. And,
because she does this amazing journal, the Jung Journal, if you don't know it. It's the most exciting, creative, interesting thing that's written that I've seen in the whole Jungian world. And Diane is kind of the, the editor, mother, you know, spirit behind it. It's really quite fantastic. Um, so to also honor your work in that um, and honor everyone's work in coming this evening and in your journey. I don't know what you might want to say at that. Close, if you do. <laughs> I just blab on, you know. <laughs> Can't help myself. This is the extrovert and the introvert. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, and, and he, he leads lead silent retreats, and I go to um, Tibetan retreats <laughs> or drummings. <laughs> so um, I, I just want to say how grateful I am to all of you for coming, and what a wonderful feeling there's been tonight. It, it's really been wonderful. And thank you, Jack, so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. It's great. And I love and seeing, you know, what you brought and the images. Um, but more than that, you know, the dialogue and the, the spirit. Thank you. I want to thank you both so much. Get your copy of the Red Book and, you know, take your journey. Thank you both, all of you, so much for coming. And thank you so much, Jack and Diane. This was a lovely, lovely evening. Thank you. <laughs>